My wife and I were very lucky yesterday. We, we came down from uh, London and we attended the school symphony concert last night. And I want to say quite frankly that in the whole of my life, now I'm duly protracted. <laughs> I've never heard a school orchestra play like it. It was marvellous. And I thought, well, that's the optimum. I looked at them last night, we both did, full of enthusiasm, almost improperly competent at their work. It was a most exciting night. And then this morning in church, just as we thought that uh, we had heard the best of them, we heard them sing. I, I must speak with a, a voice of envy. When I was a schoolboy, we didn't sing like this. And as for playing musical instruments, well, mercifully our colleagues were absolved from the duty of listening to us. But this is a great musical school. I don't suppose a boy could sit down in an orchestra with others and rehearse, as I gathered uh, later on, on many, many, many occasions, without becoming uh, conscious at first of his colleagues' infirmities and in the long run of the harmonies that existed between them. This must be a great means of establishing a sense of unity. And that, after all, sir, is what a great school is for. You've, uh, Headmaster, stolen a little of my thunder on the university scene, because I may tell you that uh, for my uh, undoubted uh, virtues, uh, uh, I've been made Chancellor of my own university in Melbourne in Australia. And although I've been in that post only for two years, I already have a nodding acquaintance with the miseries that attach to that office <laughs> and the problems that confront the average university. And so I'd prefer to say a little, because as you know I'm on a time limit, a little about schools. I want in the first place uh, to say that it's all very well for you to read who's who and see that I'm interested in first-class cricket, this is quite true. But the other day, in the Cinque Ports, I went to a school and gave out the prizes, a mass of them on the table, and there was a test match on in another place. <laughs> Now there was a headmaster for you, because looking at this massive array of books on the table, on the platform, he took with him a transistor. <laughs> and while he was reading out the names in a loud, clear voice, I was keeping in touch. <laughs> I can't complain about you today, sir, because unhappily there's no test match on. <laughs> I suppose there's a cricket match on somewhere, but uh, in England one doesn't expect it to be played in the summer. 
Sir, what, what, what is, uh, what's a great school for? I, I don't mind telling you that I was very worried just at the end of the war because with taxation, even in my own country, running at a tremendous rate, I was afraid that the great public schools in Australia, and we have some very good ones indeed, would feel the pinch that people couldn't afford to send their boys or their girls to these schools with this enormous rate of tax. Well, I might have saved myself the trouble because taxes at all given in the greatest demand in the history of Australia for higher education, secondary and tertiary came with the finish of the war. Tremendous schools with waiting lists. And this uh, makes one think, why? Well, of course, there are casual newspaper scribblers who attribute all this to a sort of snobbery. You know, I must send my boy to a, a school that will be of good social standing. I think this is a lot of nonsense. I think better of parents than that. I think that the average father and mother have a great ambition to give their son or daughter the very best that he or she can get. This is a famous old Scots tradition and it carries on. They must, if possible, be better placed than we were. They must have, if possible, a better education than we have because this will be for them the foundation of their lives. This, I'm sure, is true. But uh, at the same time, I'm sure that the schools have problems. We're living in a curious sort of century. I speak freely as one who was born in the last century. A curious century, the greatest explosion of scientific research and technological development that the world has ever seen. A tremendous century of science, pure and applied. And at the same time, a century more marred by violence, by hatred, by misunderstanding than perhaps any other century, not even leaving out the worst of the Middle Ages. This is a 20th century of war and violence and misunderstanding, hostilities, hatreds, while at the same time, it's a world in which brilliant men and women have unlocked the chambers of knowledge as they've never been unlocked before. Now, when I say that, I don't want to say that uh, I'm against this great growth of science. I'm entirely for it. But I think that the world requires, as never before, that its scientists should be educated, should have the broad humanities of life within the scope of their minds.
so that when they deal with science, they can at all times see it against the background of human knowledge, of human philosophy, of human experience. And at the same time, the humanities, which have perhaps tended to be put a little into the background, will have to make up their minds that they are living in a new world and that you can't understand the new world unless you understand something, however elementary, about the enormous forces of nature which have been identified and released by scientific research. I think it was C.P. Snow who said something about the, the two worlds. I don't accept that myself. I don't see why we should go along with this false partition between science and human knowledge and human understanding on the other side. This would be fatal. It is, in fact, because our technical resources have outrun our human understanding that the world has been marred and mangled on two great occasions in this century. And therefore, I'm all for the broad training, the broad education. I confess I'm thoroughly opposed to early specialization. I think that to have a boy, for example, and I'm talking about them today, having, strangely enough, been one myself, I think that if a boy has it put into his head, foolishly perhaps by a parent, when he's about 14, well now look, forget about Latin, forget about these other things you're looking at. Uh, you're going to be so-and-so, so concentrate purely on the topics, if you can, that will help you to do so-and-so and to make a living. I think this is a disaster for the world. Because after all, Headmaster, I'll undertake to say that when you sit down at the end of your academic year and contemplate the past 12 months, your greatest pride would be to feel that you had helped to create a substantial group of civilized citizens, civilized people. Man's not civilized because he's clever. He's not civilized because he's a good chemist. He's not civilized because he's a good lawyer, though that's a marvelous thing to be. <laughs> but he is civilized if he has got to understand that he's living in a world of men and that he must understand men and be tolerant of men and stand for things which go beyond the bank account. This is civilization, and it's something that we want. We happen to be living, it's an old cliché, in a highly material age. The economist has taken charge of us. Now, I, I have no inherent objection to, e to economists. I've had to cope with a great number of them in my own public life. And I think, com uh, I think that the economists are very good in their place. But to have a notion predominating in the world that the only problems, for example, in England, are economic problems or financial problems, 
This is a terrible blunder. Economic problems have a habit of settling themselves by means usually unknown to the economists when they pointed them out. Financial problems have a habit of sorting themselves out. I've, uh, I've seen a great number in my own country, and I've seen them come and go. They have to be dealt with, of course. But everything, everything is not to be expressed in terms of material things, of profit and loss accounts, of the resources of a country, of its balance of payments or its balance of trade. Because the truth is that the greatest problems in our society today are problems which are essentially moral or spiritual. Now, I don't want to sound ponderous or pompous about this because I have no desire to. But I do become rather weary of hearing all these things expressed in terms of pounds, shillings and pence. Whereas the truth is that this country of England, about whose troubles I read day after day in the press, all the material troubles I read about day after day in the press, this country has a reserve of moral fibre and of moral courage not surpassed anywhere in the world or at any time in history. This has been proved in our own lifetimes. And I think that your people need to be reminded of it, need to be reminded that down inside of them they have something that will not only clear up the problems but will demonstrate a sense of nationhood and of community, which is the most important thing they have before them. I was looking at the hymn book this morning, uh, not while the sermon was being preached, uh, but uh, <laughs> a little earlier, and I was looking at, the, uh, at uh, that famous him, as it now is, uh, there the author of it would have uh, been surprised to be told that he would ever get into a hymn book without. I shall not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Now let me just point out about this. Struck me once more this morning. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand. Here's the individual speaking, the individual responsibility. Till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The individual effort as the basis of it, the individual consciousness as the basis of it, the community effort as the result of it. Now this, this is something that has a tremendous application to a great school like yours. Because uh, at school, particularly a school with a great lar a large number of boarders who are residing, who are living in the same places, 
Boys get to live with each other and to know how to live with each other. That's something the world needs to learn, isn't it? How to live with each other. How nations are to learn to live with each other. But they learn it at school. This is a complete a summary, really, of the world's problems and of the world's solution. And whatever's done in this school, whether it's a great concert or a great achievement, not done by one, but done by us, as the boys might well be entitled to say, till we have built Jerusalem, till we have built this school. You know, I find that a tremendous and exciting thought. And indeed, if I were in the habit of preaching a sermon, which I'm not, I should willingly take it as a text. And a text not only for a long-suffering audience, at Canterbury, but a text for all the people in your country and in mine. Now, sir, I'm sorry to be so long. You, uh, the, the headmaster, in his infinite compassion, uh, said he'd like me to speak for 10 or 12 minutes, and I've exceeded my time. And I have to go back to London, and my wife, Boudier, has to go back with me. She has no particular reason for going back, but I have because I'm giving a little dinner party to a few cricketers tonight. 